0: From the JAMA Network, this is the JAMA Medical News Podcast. Discussing timely
1: topics in clinical medicine, biomedical sciences, public health, and health policy
0: featured in the Medical News section of JAMA. Welcome to the JAMA Medical News Podcast. This is Jennifer Abbasi. In the spring of 2013, Dr. Eileen Barrett lost a colleague to suicide. The two worked at the Indian Health Service's Gallup Indian Medical Center in New Mexico, where Dr. Barrett was the deputy chief of medicine. Even before the tragic event, she saw workers struggle under administrative burdens and hold themselves personally responsible for problems outside of their control. With her co-worker's death, it became painfully clear that clinician wellness had to become a higher priority. Today, Dr. Barrett is an associate professor of medicine and an academic hospitalist at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. As the school's director of graduate medical education wellness initiatives, she spent a lot of time focusing on physician care since the COVID-19 pandemic began. I spoke with her for this podcast in March. She said she wants physicians to remember what she learned in Sierra Leone during a six-week stint as an Ebola health worker in 2014. Surrounded by the very real risk of death, she realized that she'd be of no help to anyone if she herself fell ill. In fact, foregoing her own physical or emotional health could jeopardize her patients and fellow healthcare workers. Dr. Barrett and I chatted about how, during the pandemic, physicians can safeguard a precious commodity, their own mental health. During your time in West Africa during the Ebola crisis, Do you feel like that experience has anything in common with what healthcare workers are experiencing or will experience now with the COVID-19 pandemic?
1: Oh, absolutely. It does in lots of different ways. Uh, Some of it has to do with the nature of being in uncharted territory. Some of it has to do with the nature of taking care of patients and being in communities, locations, and institutions that the patients can become catastrophically ill. Uh, Also, where there are places with some pretty dire shortages of PPE and also at the time where I was working, when I was working, there wasn't, although there were treatment protocols, that there wasn't actually any known treatment per se. So there was a lot of supportive care. And that's really where we are right now, this minute with the hopes that by tomorrow that we have treatments that work, of course, for COVID. So I do believe that there are
0: a lot of similarities. What are some of the key stressors that physicians are dealing with during this crisis, both at work and in their personal lives?
1: I think a really critical one is uncertainty, and that certainty is what does tomorrow look like, because every time you open the newspaper, every time you look online, that there are more cases, and also wondering what does PPE look like where you work, and will you be protected? Will your family be protected? And also, there's probably, for the clinicians and the physicians right now who are in hot spots, that... There is a lot of trauma about the suffering of the patients, also about the suffering of their peers. There also is the trauma of knowing that there is a risk to your own health to doing the work. For the people who are in places where there aren't very many cases, then there also can be certainly all of those, but there also can be the fear of what's coming. A colleague had touchingly described it to me as being on the beach before the tsunami, so the water is gone and you know it's coming. Mm. And... There is that fear of what will happen and what will look like for your community. And then lastly, also the quite reasonable concern for the safety and well-being of your own patients, who you care so much about, and then also your families and your friends, particularly the concern that you could
0: have that you could bring it home to them, because all of us, of course, can be vectors. I asked Dr. Barrett about the psychological toll that a crisis like this can take on a physician. She brought up a study published in late March in one of our journals, JAMA Network Open. It was a study of more than 1200 healthcare workers in China. The researchers found that there were specific risk factors for negative mental health outcomes among these healthcare workers.
1: Specifically, those included being in Wuhan, being a frontline healthcare worker, being female, being a nurse, among some others and We already did see that there can be some negative mental health outcomes, and those can include anxiety, depression, also that people can experience PTSD because this really can be traumatic work for them. Also, then there just are the other things. They can seem like they're just, quote, but they shouldn't be. Things like loneliness, things like potentially imposter syndrome or survivor's guilt, if you feel like you're not doing enough, and a lot of the other things that can affect anyone else during a crisis.
0: You mentioned loneliness. How does that affect physicians during a time like this?
1: Well, we came into this time with really unprecedented levels of burnout uh, in the profession anyway. And so, this is a really particularly terrible time. It's always, it's never a good time, of course. And it's always awful to have our health systems and our personal strengths tested. But in a time when people were feeling so much more stress, distress, burnout, in their profession, then it's particularly hard to have another layer on top of that. So a lot of people have been experiencing professional loneliness and isolation um, having to do with spending more times behind screens, having less time with our patients, having less time with our peers, and more time in our quote pajama time after hours on the EMR and away from our friends and our families. And then when we put on top of that, the need for social distancing, which I really appreciate when people refer to it as physical distancing, and that we can really feel isolated. Uh, Also very tactically, when you're wearing your PPE, you are physically separated from other people and that there is no human touch.
0: So what are some things that healthcare leaders should be doing to look after their workers' mental and emotional health? And are there examples from your hospital that you could share? By the
1: nature of being a physician, that we all are leaders, and I hope that all of us can own that to the extent that we can, that it feels authentic to ourselves. But the people who carry explicit leadership positions do have very explicit duties. And there are ethical duties there. There also are uh, administrative duties. And some of those are to provide people with just the tangible, but also the intangible support that they need. I read this great article in the New England Journal last week that reminded me about a quote from Paul Farmer that people need stuff, staff, space, and systems. And I would agree with all of that. And the The staff is having enough people, right? Enough people who are in good health mentally and physical. The staff is having your PPE, but it's not just about having your PPE. It's also about having maybe the child care, also about the connections to uh, mental health services. I think that every leader has a duty to create systems for people to have peer support, uh, in addition to having access to telemedicine for mental health services, Uh, also for just um, debriefing periods. But the other stuff can be even small things like making sure that everybody has enough hand sanitizer, the, um, the bleach wipes, see small ways that people can show that we value them and care about them, making sure that they have enough scrubs, um, that they are able to do their telemedicine from someplace where they're not on top of, physically on top of another person or co-located with another person so that they can have their social distancing feel safe when they're providing the care to the patients. And also that they can have the the systems of support, meaning that there also is the communication that's necessary. So communication that is with diligence With transparency of why difficult decisions are being made, and also to avoid overly normalizing or overly catastrophizing what's going on, being factual, and also having a lot of humanity, showing very tactical support, such as things like meals, while also providing thanks and saying thanks as often as possible, asking people what they need, and then giving it. Some additional examples that I've seen both in my own organization, but also those of my colleagues include also just people being able to work from wherever they need to to take care of their patients. So absolutely um, doing telemedicine where it will be safe. So say, for example, not doing it from a pod in a a crowded clinic where we won't be able to stay six feet away from each other. Um, And also certainly not having in-person visits that are non-essential. Some other things also can be Say, for example, um, I really appreciate that uh, our division chief, that we have lunch available for us every day. It's a small gesture. I know that my colleagues have appreciated when other people, when their organizations have allowed the community that wants to act upon their values, they want to act upon their things, that if someone offers to buy breakfast for the nurses that the institution is saying yes and thank you because we are all in this together. So those are some small gestures. Some other bigger ones can be giving people explicit time to disconnect from the work and a mechanism to catch up because... We are so overburdened with electronic communications right now that we need to be given permission to know that right now it's a sprint, but it's also a marathon. And it's okay to disconnect from the work, to be outside, to spend some time with your family, to recharge so that you can come back and bring your best work to the job.
0: You mentioned stuff. so. What happens when the stuff is running out and what can leaders do to be transparent about that and responsible about that and sensitive to obviously the concerns that healthcare workers will have?
1: Yeah. So there are some mitigation strategies that I hope that everyone can implement and meaning that shortage mitigation strategies. And some of the lessons here are lessons that we were able to do when I was an Ebola worker. So it's not just high resource systems, this can be really be done anywhere. One of them is to when we're running out of PPE is to be smart about how we're using it. So say for example in the hospital clustering care. And by that what I mean is that if anybody is going into the room, they're also seeing what else they can do at the same time. And we did this in West Africa, we certainly can do it here. So some examples that we can think of for that very tactically would be if someone is getting a medication three times a day, then instead of having it every eight hours, what it will be is breakfast, lunch, and dinner at the same time as the patient is receiving other medications and also at the same time as they're getting their meals, maybe a blood draw, getting their insulin, getting their vital signs checked. Of course, there are some medications where we can't make that change, but there's a lot of cases where we can. the care so that we have less is where we go in and we go out. Another thing that we can do is that we can be innovative and we can learn from each other. So one example would be in the hospital that people have done is to put the IV poles outside the rooms and then run the IV tubing just under the door and into the patient, so that then the antibiotics or the other medications or the IV fluids that are being hung, those can be done without having to go in and out of the room. Another key thing that we can do is, again, the use of telemedicine. So that can be, if it's in the clinic, again, allowing people to work from wherever they need to work that is safe and that the patients can receive the care that they deserve via phone, via other approved platforms And then in the hospital that we can use those things too, such as providing the patients with tablets so that they can see their healthcare worker. If someone is in a system where they don't have that, then making sure that they have phones in the room so that they can talk to their nurses, they can talk to their clinicians, to their physicians without going in and out. So we can be smart about how we're using the PPE. I think that that's really something that every system should be looking to do right now is mitigate the shortages of PPE, cluster the care, and to think creatively and to have the humility to learn from each other. Another step there would be to flatten the hierarchy. So again, when the work needs to be done, to the extent that is reasonable, that anybody who can take care of that need for the patient will do so. And of course, being mindful of the work that needs to be done, that there is work that absolutely can only and should only be done by physicians versus the work that can be done, of course, by like lab techs and MAs and things like that. So we don't completely flatten the hierarchy, but we do think like, say, for example, if I'm going in to see a patient, I will always talk to the nurse to see if there's anything that he or she was going to bring in and that if I can take care of that as well, or if there's anything I know that the patient needs when I'm coming out, then I'll let the nurse know so that they can bring it in the next time. So that was a lot of detail about PPE medication. Um, I think another thing When you asked the question about transparency, I think that one very important duty of our leaders in an era of not enough PPE with a pandemic outbreak is to be transparent about how decisions are being made, why decisions are being made, and to take the support and the good ideas where they're offered. I really appreciated seeing one of my peers had shared with me that her organization had a green-yellow orange-red system of how they would manage their PPE. And that was based off the patient load, but also the PPE stores and their ability to get more. And in that framework, there also was when they would accept donations from the community, including things that were not say your N95s and not your usual surgical masks, but when they would accept donations of fabric masks, because something is better than nothing so that we can make sure that the patients get the care that they deserve while also making sure that the healthcare workers are all protected.
0: Okay. So we've talked about healthcare leaders. Let's talk about physicians themselves and some self-care. So what are some things that they can do to look after themselves right now? So very
1: tangibly, we should never forget the things that we knew from when we were kids, which is doing our best to get a good night's sleep, use caffeine only strategically (laughs) to make sure that we're eating well, and to make sure we're getting a little bit of time outside if where we work allows us to do that, and where we live allows us to do that, and a little bit of exercise, or ideally even a lot of exercise. Specifically thinking about eating, being really careful about sugar and other carbohydrates that might make us crash, because we really, again, during a difficult time, we'll all be a lot more sensitive to how our blood sugars go up and go down and our energy levels. So we always wanted to make sure that we do those things. And That can feel like a real luxury for a lot of physicians. And when that is the case, I often repeat the story about what we learned when I was in the Ebola treatment unit and also just in the healthcare system in West Africa at the time, which is if you aren't able to eat or you aren't, if you aren't eating and you aren't drinking and you're not taking the time to do that, then you put your peers at risk because if you end up collapsing while you're at work, then everybody else will have to do the work that will put themselves at risk to take care of you. And sometimes appealing in that way to physicians can give us permission to actually take that time. So I hope that everybody does so. And People may have heard via the newspaper, online, social media, about some healthcare workers collapsing at work. So I think that this really underscores the moral imperative for us to take care of ourselves. So in addition to those very, very practical things, some of the things that will be really important will be, again, even just a little bit of time outside, also some connection to people in some way that is not about COVID and our response. So that's Humor sparingly, not grim humor, of course, but also just again, our shared humanity. This is a really nice time, I think, for people to think about the sections in our journals that are about our humanity, like a piece of my mind is one that I can think of. There are also a lot of the other journals have them too, which is just about connecting to who we are as people and what is our duty to each other, and why do we do this? Because we need to find some sense of purpose for the work that we do. Another thing that we need to do, I think, is to cultivate a sense of self-compassion, so that we aren't too critical of ourselves when we aren't able to do everything possible for that patient. When patient's Sometimes we do nearly everything right and the patient has a bad outcome and it has nothing to do with what we did. And so how do we give ourselves permission to be people and to have perspective? And some way to do that is by talking with peers, connecting to peers, staying connected to our lives outside of being practicing physicians, and possibly also seeking mental health care if we need to.
0: What about stressors at home? So you've mentioned keeping your family safe is a stressor that a lot of physicians and healthcare workers are dealing with right now and minimizing the risk of infection of your family members being in contact with you. So is there any advice around that?
1: So for stressors at home, I think a really big one, particularly as we see with more and more women in medicine and also more and more physician families. We have two physician families. is how we take care of children. And that's, I think, an under-recognized stressor, which is that since we don't presently have a national strategy to provide child care, that is a real stressor for people is where are their children going to go so that they can go to work and how will their children be kept safe. So that's a real thing that is an opportunity and I think really a, a duty for our leaders to try to help develop solutions for. But also for keeping our families safe, I think one of the things that we can do is to think about our duty to keep ourselves safe. So say, for example, for people who are seeing patients who are suspected as having COVID or do have COVID or really anyone, because people, there can be asymptomatic transmission, that we make sure that we are diligent with our hand hygiene, diligent with our PPE. Very tactically, I think that if people are not using their white coats right now, will be really important. I think also wearing scrubs, ideally, if your workplace allows you to use their washing of scrubs, then changing into your scrubs at work, doing the duty of the patient care, being meticulous with your infection control precautions, and then changing out of the scrubs at work and going home in other clothes, including different shoes. I would recommend also that, or there are recommendations also, to not bring your jewelry to work. That is in a place that microbes can stay, even though that can be particularly difficult for people not to wear their wedding rings. That's important. And really to think very deliberately about every step about what we do and to develop guidelines so it's not just what I do it's what we do and that the institution will say look this is the best advice that we have for how to keep you safe or the practice will say this is the best advice that we have to keep you safe and it's adopting those strategies that I just mentioned before. And including right before we get inside our homes, some people are in a section of their home, they're keeping as like a dirty room. And that is where they have wiped down their shoes, leave their shoes outside. They're changing out of their work clothes, taking a shower, putting their work clothes into a bag that then they can toss into the washing machine and into the dryer, and then not even seeing anybody in their family until they've done all of those things.
0: How can physicians and other healthcare workers support each other right now?
1: In addition to just having the supplies and being mindful about that we're all in this together and that this time is really hard, a very tactical thing, there's just there's just such power in the smallest ways of just checking in with people and to say, I'm thinking of you, how are you doing? And to remember life outside of the clinic and outside of the hospital. So like even a text, possibly an email, a note via social media, just thinking of you, thinking of your family, um, how are the kids these days? Small gestures like that mean a lot to people. I think also Explicitly noting that someone seems like this is a really hard time. Do you want to talk about it? People can say no, Um, but they might say yes. And also connecting them to existing resources for mental health care. And then lastly, I would say to, uh, again, give them permission to take some time off, some time away.
0: You've talked about the guilt that some healthcare workers might feel when they don't have the outcomes they're looking for with patients. On the flip side, some physicians, like those who are sidelined right now by quarantine or illness, might be dealing with a different kind of guilt. What about that? The guilt
1: of feeling as though we aren't contributing is really difficult. And that can, of course, be a component of a almost like a survivor guilt, almost a little bit of imposter syndrome. And I think that that can be real. Before I had done work in West Africa, I also had done some work in refugee camps and at a field hospital for a refugee camp. And it could feel like it wasn't hard enough because say, for example, in that case, there was someone who, in both cases, actually, there were people who were making meals for me and doing my laundry. So it felt like it wasn't hard enough on some level. We can minimize our own experiences because it becomes a suffering olympics and i mean that as a race to the bottom we don't mean it that way but someone else always has it harder than us so i hope that those people who feel like they are sidelined that if that is how they're feeling first i think that we should normalize it and say you're not alone if you feel the way and that just isn't true thank you for everything that you do for the patients i think if they feel like they have the bandwidth to be able to do so looking for other ways that they might be able to contribute with a crisis, there's a lot of innovation that can come. So say, for example, for people who are quarantined and are unable to see patients, one opportunity could be that maybe they can take home call. Um, I know in my institution, one of the things that we started was there's a team that's admitting COVID patients overnight. And then we started a new team of people who are at home who are managing the cross cover for the patients in the hospital, for those who don't need to be seen in person. So it's a lot of their routine calls, and it is a fair number of, a number of them that they get all night, and then it frees up the people who are taking care of people with COVID to take care of the COVID patients. I think that there's some pretty obvious lessons there for the outpatient clinic.
0: What happens as we start to return to normal? So do you think, based on your experience and your research, that some physicians may have lasting trauma from this, and what can we do to prepare for that?
1: I think that as this goes away, and like you, I can't wait until this does, some things that we can do are things that we should be doing right now. So one of them is knowing that there is data and explicitly that there was a paper that was published a couple weeks ago in The Lancet about the psychological effects of quarantine and how to reduce it, that there are some things that we can refer to the science for and that we can adopt. And so one of those things would be that we, of course, always tie the work to altruism and we don't ever forget that. The other thing is knowing the lesson that we have from our colleagues in Wuhan that what we can do is we can provide people with the mental health care services that they need right now and also that they deserve right now for the healthcare care workers. Also, feeling as though we were really very actively need to engage through organized medicine and within our practices and our institutions, organizations, to demonstrate moral leadership so that there is the minimal amount of regret afterward that we could have done something better or different to protect the patients, to protect ourselves, to protect the community.
0: That's it for this episode of JAMA Medical News. For more of our podcasts, visit jamanetworkaudio.com. You can subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts.